This podcast is a presentation of Sunset Presbyterian Church. For more information, log on to our website at www.sunsetpres.org. I'm not tired of that sermon bumper yet. I hope you aren't. It certainly speaks to the series that we're in, The Upside Down Kingdom. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we affirm all that has been shared by Bill. We particularly affirm that we want your will, not ours. So we're so grateful, though, that you have worked through our search team in these ways. And Father, now we turn our attention to further learning about this upside-down kingdom. Lord, we know that this whole idea of the upside-down kingdom unnerves us. It challenges us. It pushes us outside our comfort zone. It kind of messes with us. And ultimately, it wrecks us. Because in our humanity, these attributes, these things about this kingdom do not come naturally. And so this morning, Father, I ask that you would speak. That you would be the one who convicts hearts, that pierces our hearts, that enlarges our hearts. That ultimately moves us to become more like your son, Christ. And usher in this kingdom, in Jesus' name. Amen. So that's our series, The Upside Down Kingdom. Israel was looking for a king, for a king like David, and they longed to be back in their own kingdom than under Roman rule. They'd been waiting hundreds of years for this kingdom, this new kingdom that the prophets had talked about many times. And so Matthew begins his book with the genealogy of Jesus. Because the promised king who would usher in this kingdom would have to come from the line of David. But the test from ancestry DNA shows some very interesting things as Matthew walks us through this. One, Jesus was a king born to die, not rule and reign. Born to ascend to a cross, not a throne. And a grave, not a castle. Jesus' ancestry includes the poor, the outcast, the marginalized, who are given names and faces and recognized and highlighted rather than hidden as disgraceful. Now, this is not the normal way a king comes into power or a kingdom is ushered in. It just is not. His birth gives some hints to kingship, doesn't it? The star, the astronomers from afar who acknowledge that this is a world event and bring gifts. Gifts, by the way, that end up supporting this young family in their flight to Egypt until Herod's reign of terror is over. Once they return, though, they settle in Nazareth. Nazareth. Again, an unlikely starting point for one who will be king. That would be kind of like saying a president who came from Drain, Oregon. I don't know what I have about Drain. I just love that name. Ever since I would drive I-5 between Sacramento and Oregon, I think, why would anyone name a town Drain, Oregon? His preparation for kingship is another thing that's a mystery to us. He's led into the desert. He's tempted by the devil. And the entire experience from fasting to each one of the temptations is designed to teach him dependence. Not on himself, not on the fact that he is God and man, but rather total dependence, total dependence, 
not necessarily the character quality that we look for in leaders or kings or presidents or lead pastors. And yet this is what, this is how it begins. So today we're going to look at Matthew 5. Before we do that, Matthew 4.17 announces Jesus himself announces the launch of this kingdom. And he says, from that time on, this is right prior to the tempt, right after the temptation. Jesus says, from that time on, he began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is his launch of this upside down kingdom. And this is why he taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, Matthew records two events that happened before we get to chapter 5. Uh, and they're both important. Again, they're signs and signals of this upside-down kingdom. The first is that he calls his first disciples. And I, that's the section title in my Bible, the calling of the first disciples. Now, section titles in your Bible are not the inspired word of God. They're inserted in there to help us organize as we read. But I like that one, actually. The reason I like it is because Jesus is going to continue to call disciples, even after he's chosen the 12. In fact, all the way to the end of the book until he turns to his followers and says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make more disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And we are part of those disciples. And we too are called to go and make disciples. The second event recorded in 4.23 through 25 is that Jesus heals the sick. Now this too is very significant because it demonstrates the compassion of this king. Normal kings would not have time to deal with those who were sick, lame, or diseased. That would have kind of been beneath their pay grade. So they sent others to do that. If they were compassionate, they made sure those needs were taken care of. But they were concerned with power and wealth and surrounded by healthy and strong people to help them lead. But Matthew 4.24 says, News about him spread over all, spread all over Syria. <clears throat> And the people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. And the result of this was that large crowds begin to follow Jesus. You see, we're impressed with power and strength and wealth and notoriety, but we are drawn in closer by compassion. And this is all very important because of what happens next. Because Jesus is now going to roll out a new constitution for this upside-down kingdom that comes from heaven. So let's begin in Matthew 5. If you have a Bible, and this time the scripture will not come up on the screen. So you might want to open your Bibles. If you don't have one on your phone or tablet, there's one in the, uh, probably around you there in the pocket of the seats. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Let me pause there for just a moment. Being seated to teach 
is the proper position of a rabbi when teaching his disciples. Uh, The Greek word for the disciple literally means to sit at one's feet. So those listening to Jesus would have clearly seen that he was demonstrating that he was a rabbi um, and that he was calling his disciples to him. The difference is that normal Jewish rabbis were very selective about who could sit at their feet. They only wanted the best of the best of the best. Only those that had risen to the top in rabbi school. And they didn't want the rest. Jesus has called all the rabbi school dropouts to join him as his disciple. And then he makes room for others who want to join him. Crowds, men, women, even children. They can become his disciples. Second, Jesus is teaching from a mountainside. Now let me ask you a question. Where else in scripture does teaching come down from a mountain? Yes, the Ten Commandments, Mount Sinai. God gives Moses the law for the people of Israel from the mountain, uh, from Mount Sinai. And the reality is, all the good Jews would have recognized that Jesus' teaching on a mountain had significance. He was laying out a new constitution for a new kingdom. Now, at Sinai, there was thunder and lightning, and only Moses could ascend to the mountain. Anyone else dared go, they would be killed. There was dread and fear. This time, instead of dread and fear, he is God's presence, the word made flesh, as John 1 tells us, And as John 1 says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. But the difference is the presentation of God on Sinai and the presentation of God in Jesus tells us in John, he came from the Father full of grace and truth. And that's the difference between the first law and this second law, the second constitution. The second constitution is full of grace and truth. All right, let's read chapter three or chapter five, three through eleven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you falsely, and say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets, um, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the heart of this new constitution. Now, we've come to know this little section of Matthew as the Beatitudes. Have you ever wondered why they're called that? Well, the word uh, blessed, or uh, that means blessed, Uh, from the Latin, um, and each one of these beatitudes begins with this word blessed. 
blessed. And the Greek word for blessed is often defined in the English language as happy, or another way to say it is to be envied. Now, the word happy, based on today's meaning, can kind of lead us astray a little bit. To say blessed are you was actually a common Jewish literary form that might be better expressed, it will go well with the one who. It may go well with the one who. And then the expression often ended with, for that one will receive. So it may go well, it will go well for the one who, and then would come the injunction, and then uh, for that one will receive, and then would come the blessing. Happy, I think, leads us to think of immediate satisfaction. But all that prom- is promised here pertains to the coming kingdom, not to immediate gratification. The kingdom that is here and not yet. And I know you've heard that phrase from Jason, from Mike, from myself, this idea of a kingdom that is here, but not yet. There's two pieces to this kingdom. All the blessings listed are blessings of this kingdom time. And in the time of the kingdom that is here but not yet, God will comfort all who mourn. And originally God said, I will comfort all who mourn in Zion. In Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, he said, He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve. So in kingdom time, God will comfort all who mourn. If you're mourning today, for whatever reason, if your spirit feels dark, then know that in kingdom time, the now and the not yet, God will comfort. God will satisfy the hunger and thirst of his people, just as he promised in Isaiah 25, 6 through 8, when he said, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest wines. And on this mountain, he will swallow up death forever. And the sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces, and he will remove the people's disgrace. He will feed us something we have never known, far better than manna as he fed in the wilderness. And I'm sure, Mike, there'll be some lasagna there for you. Pretty sure at that banquet. Only it'll be the best lasagna you ever had. God's ultimate mercy will be revealed on the day of judgment. And he'll declare the righteous to be his children. Just like he promised in Revelation 21.7. When he said, those who are victorious will inherit all this. And I will be their God. And they will be my children. In, our, in this kingdom that is now, but not yet, we experience God, but technically he's invisible to us, isn't he? But in the future, the righteous will fully see God. 1 Corinthians 13, the end of that chapter says, now we see through a mirror darkly, but then we will see him face to face. Now you can't earn these blessings. No amount of striving on our part helps us get them. The only way we receive them is God must intervene in our lives and grace us with them. And another thing that's important to understand is we cannot demand them now. 
We, we cannot as kingdom people try to force God's will on a world unprepared for it. This is kind of what happened uh, in the early centuries uh, right after Jesus' death and resurrection. Many first century Jews believed, came to believe that the only answer to their suffering and longing for God's promises was to take things into their own hands. That the only adequate response to the violence and the oppression of Roman dominion was to fight back, to try to violently overthrow the, the Romans. And they did this, and they experienced crushing defeat in the war of A.D. 66 through 73. You see, Jesus promises the kingdom not to those who try to force his hand. This is what Satan tempted Jesus to do. Force God's hand. And Jesus said, no, no, I will not do that. The kingdom is promised to those who patiently and humbly wait for it, to the meek and the poor in spirit and the merciful and the peacemakers. I love Jesus' words about peacemakers here. It means not only living in peace with people, which is what Paul talks about in Romans 12, 18, where he says, if possible, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. But it also means purposely and actively bringing harmony to others through the work of reconciliation with spouses, neighbors, friends, extended family, others in the church, because, as Paul says, all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We have been called to be reconcilers, reconciling people both with God, but also with one another. Finally, the constitution of this upside-down kingdom turns our normal bent towards individualism and independence on its head. Now, hang in there with me for a moment, okay? We're going to go to school for a second, all right? Some of you love this when I do this. Some of you, I lose you, I realize. But Robert Bella, in his seminal work, Habits of the Heart, this is not a Christian book, this is a sociological book, Um, Habits of the Heart, Individualism and Commitment in America says this. He says, first of all, to remind you, as Tocqueville himself put it, and Tocqueville was a French philosopher who came over in 18, wrote a work in 1831 after he studied prisons in America uh, that was called Democracy in America, and so that's part of what Bella is quoting here. He says, individualism is a word recently coined. And in fact, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, the first appearance of the word individualism in English is in the English translation of Democracy in America. And it doesn't appear in Volume 1. It's only in Volume 2, that is, in 1835. That is surprising to us because we imagine individualism to be endemically American and that probably John Winthrop and the pilgrims were talking about it as they got off the boat. And certainly the drafters of the Constitution were talking individualism, individualism, individualism. No, says Bella, that's not how it went. Not one of them ever used that word because it did not exist. And while I don't want to put too much stock on this kind of semantic history, he says, it isn't an accident that the word becomes common and central in the middle of the 19th century and not earlier. 
So he continues, quoting Tocqueville. He says, Tocqueville says, our fathers only knew about egoism. Now we have this new thing, individualism. Individualism, and this is one of the places where Tocqueville comes as close as he ever does to defining it. Now listen to this. This is the definition of individualism. Is a calm and considered feeling which disposes each citizen to isolate himself from the mass of his fellows and withdraw into the circle of family and friends. And with this little society formed to his taste, he gladly leaves the greater society to look after itself. And as this tendency grows, Tocqueville wrote, there are more and more people who, though neither rich nor powerful enough to have much hold over others, have gained or kept enough wealth and enough understanding to look after their own needs. Such folk owe no man anything and hardly expect anything from anybody. They form the habit of thinking of themselves in isolation and they imagine that their whole destiny is in their hands. <laughs> Honestly, some of you are thinking, Barbara, have you lost it? This is not a university. This is not Christian. This is, these are not written by Christians, these things. Are you just trying to show off what you know or read or what's going on here? Please understand. This is the kettle in which we modern frogs have been boiled, like it or not. This is what informs the way we live our lives. And in many instances, there's nothing inherently wrong with it. We love our families. We put family first. The world does that. Family is everything. The problem is, is that at its heart, it goes against the constitution of the upside-down kingdom. I truly believe this is why we have a new generation who is crying for community. Crying for community. And by the way, they will struggle to understand And they will struggle to figure out what true community is. They won't get it right either, because we seldom do. But to embrace this upside-down kingdom, we have to understand what might stand in our way. And this is one of the strongest tendencies that keep us from coming to the church with open hearts and open hands towards others that are not like us, who we don't know, who might be strangers. So what does it actually look like for the church to live out this new constitution? Let me give you some ideas because I think it's helpful. Coming straight from these beatitudes. To live out this new constitution, a church has to be a church who understands that God favors the humble who trust in him rather than our own strength. He calls us to get up every morning and say, this day is yours, Lord. Some days I feel like I can do today. I'm okay. But still, I claim dependence on you. And some days I get up and I say, I don't have what it takes. So I move into this day with a fresh, beautiful awareness that I need you. I cannot do life without you. 
We have to be a church who moves towards those in poverty rather than away from them or rather than simply being disturbed by poverty. And we do this because we see our own spiritual poverty. And we know that earthly wealth can cause us to feel independent from our need of what God has richly given us in Christ. We need to be a church that realizes that even when we have great wealth, we can take on a condition of poverty in our hearts by not allowing ourselves to be deceived with the attraction of wealth. A church who, because of this, embraces the poverty of the poor in spirit and responds with great generosity because it is generosity that will make us rich. We have to be a church that's not afraid to mourn, to weep with those who weep, when in reality, we much prefer to rejoice with those who rejoice. We love stories where cancer goes away, where marriages are restored, where abuse is overcome, and where violence doesn't leave any scars. But that is not our world. We are called to mourn, literally to feel or show deep sorrow or regret for someone else's pain, not just our own. And to do that, we have to be willing to get much closer to other people's pain than we typically do. We can't just be people, we can't just be with people who fill us up. I hear that so often. You know, I I, I just can't deal with those people. They take too much out of me. And I get that. I understand that. I can support that completely from a psychological point of view. My problem is when I get to the scripture, then I start struggling with it. So we have to invite those in pain and suffering and in struggle and in loneliness into our circles and create space not only for them but for their pain as well. And this is not easy. To every one of you in an existing small group who invited new members in, I say thank you, bless you. Yes, it's going to unnerve your group. Yeah, it's going to create some discomfort. Yeah, it's somebody new. You loved your circle, but in doing so, you are living the upside-down kingdom. We have to be a church that, Jesus, that knows that Jesus promises the kingdom to the powerless and the oppressed who respond to their condition of helplessness by trusting God rather than from favors from the powerful for deliverance. And we have to be a church who yearns for God above all else, above teaching on Sunday morning, worship on Sunday morning, the things that the church provides for you, you need God even more than you need that. And yes, God uses us to provide himself to you, but we need to put him above all else, who hunger and thirst after more than just their next meal or a glass of beer or wine who use even physical hunger to be in a position of valuing God more than food, who hunger for more than just a full belly, but also for God's justice and his vindication of the oppressed, who have a deep and growing desire to do God's will. These are the ones who will say with Jeremiah, your words were found and I ate them. Your words were the joy and the delight of my heart. I'm calling this the Constitution for a New Kingdom. Our country also has a Constitution, doesn't it? We have a Bill of Rights, 
And both the Constitution and the Bill of Rights flow out of and are designed to protect the rights that were laid out in the Declaration of Independence. And most of you can say it by heart. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that all are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable uh, rights, that among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that's what our country is based on. And it has served us well. I'm not against the Declaration of Independence or our own country's constitution in any way, shape, or form. Where I struggle is, this is not the constitution of the new kingdom. In the upside-down kingdom, we give up. We lay down our life. We set aside our freedom to serve others. We find happiness in and by leaning into poverty and mourning. This does not come natural to us. But this is the upside-down kingdom that we are called to be a part of. These verses were not written to us as individuals. Did you know that? We read the Beatitudes and we think, well, this is just for me. This is what my life is supposed to look like. No, this is what we are supposed to look like. It doesn't say yours is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is what we are called to. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today and we say this is challenging. It feels overwhelming at times. Creates some discomfort. And yet, you have said that if we live into this, we will be blessed. We long for blessing. We ask that you would help us to lean in to these realities. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to move into a time of prayer and healing. Uh, So I want to invite those that, um, elders, those of you who have gifts of intercession, if you'll come down front and sit in the chairs, and then we're going to invite uh, the rest of you as you feel a need to come forward and to have someone pray with you. Perhaps it has to do with what you've heard and what you've been hearing and Your heart longs to respond, but it's difficult. Maybe you are one who is mourning today, one who is poor in spirit, one who's experiencing distress. And if that is so, we want to invite you to come and be prayed over. Um, And we're going to start with the song, I Surrender All. I didn't plan it that way, but I cannot think of a better song to begin this time with. I don't know whether you're struggling with what I've said, whether you're sitting there in a bit of disagreement or just feeling challenged or whatever, but wherever we're at today, living kingdom values begins when we say to God, I surrender all.